Well, I want to welcome you here to the Ridge. If, if you're new with us here this morning, um, there is a guest card there uh, in the back of the seat in front of you. And here's what I'll tell you. We are not going to bug you, right? We're not going to bug you if you write down your name and email. We just simply want to just send something back to you, telling you we're glad that you joined us this morning. And then, um, man, if there's any way that we can serve you, help you, minister to you or your family, um, and we would love to do that. And so uh, at the end of our message today, we're going to come and, and worship through a time of communion. And as we do, um, you can bring uh, guest cards uh, your, uh, up here or in the back, um, in the plates up here. Um, and that would just be a blessing for us to, to be able to get back with you and tell you thanks for joining us today. Um, during the Advent season... We have been going through a series simply entitled God With Us. And so we've been looking at um, how God has revealed himself as a, as a God who desires to be with us and who has shown himself to be with us throughout history. And we've seen it throughout um, the Old Testament. Uh, we obviously see it through the New Testament as well, but we've been looking through uh, the lens of history and through the lens of the Old Testament the last few weeks. And we saw how God is with us from the very beginning. That was his heartbeat in Genesis, as how he created Adam and he created Eve and he desired to have a relationship with them. And that's his desire for us as well. And then we saw that God was with the Israelites um, when they were in bondage, when they were in slavery in the day of the Exodus. And now he brought them out uh, through the Red Sea and brought them into uh, freedom out of the hands of the Egyptians. And so God was with the Israelites, and he continued to be with the Israelites even in the day of, um, of David. And we saw that um, David, here he finds himself in the battlefield last week, remember? And so the Israelites are going up against their enemy, the Philistines, and the Israelites are fearful and afraid. Their king, Saul, is not willing to go and fight Goliath either, but David, the shepherd boy, who was anointed to be king, goes up against Goliath, and he says, this is the Lord's battle. And here's this little boy from Bethlehem who goes up against God's great foe, and takes Goliath down by God's strength. And so we saw God with David and how God has brought another little boy out of Bethlehem and to raise him up against God's great foe, and that was Jesus who went to the cross and once for all died for sin and conquered death through his resurrection. So what's cool about today is we're gonna see another way that God has displayed himself, showed himself to be with us. To, to, to reveal himself, his presence with mankind and how that can itself encourage us and I hope challenge us as well as we look at this story once again. Now, uh, the country or the people, the nation of Israel is once again taking center stage. And so why is that throughout scripture? Well, we saw a few weeks ago that God had created the, the people of Israel to be a chosen people that would carry his name, that would carry the truth of God and the ways of God to other nations, to the world. And so he set them apart for that purpose. But they didn't always quite get it, right? They kind of missed the target quite often, it seems. They, they struggled with that. And because they struggled with obeying God, God allows outside enemies to come against them. And so prophets like 
Jeremiah and others that we see throughout Scripture would come and give warnings. Uh, They would speak about God's coming judgment upon the people of Israel, upon Judah, because they did not listen to God. And so, back in 605 B.C., God would raise up the Babylonians. At that time, they had a prince by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. His dad was the king. And Prince Nebuchadnezzar took the Babylonians up against Assyria and Egypt. And they started just wiping out those areas. And that same year, King Nebuchadnezzar's dad dies. And so Nebuchadnezzar becomes the king and the ruler of Babylon. That same time, Nebuchadnezzar takes the Babylonians up against Judah the people of Israel, God's people, and they defeat them. And so what happens over a period of time from 605 B.C., and then we we see the greatest uh, apex of this destruction at 586 B.C., is what happens during that time period is Nebuchadnezzar goes in and, and he takes the people captive. He brings them back to Babylon. It's called the first deportation. And then you have a second deportation where people are brought back to Babylon as well. And so you have the Babylonians taking the Israelites, the people of God, to Babylon some 800 miles away. And now they're in captive. They're enslaved by the Babylonians. And then you have a third deportation. And the final one where where Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar will go into Jerusalem and destroy the temple. They'll destroy the walls. And so when you go to the book of like Nehemiah and you see Nehemiah rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, it's because of what happened at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so here you have the people of Israel at three different time periods being brought over to Babylon and being held in captivity and their land destroyed. Over this period of time, their place of worship destroyed. Their defense around their city, their security destroyed. The walls were taken down. And so all because they did not obey God, they faced the discipline of God, the consequences of their disobedience. But in the midst of that, we still see that God does not just cast them off. That they face this discipline, but God doesn't just say, hey, the heck with you, right? He continues to pursue them. He continues to sovereignly work for his people. And so I want to show you today that great truth, that God is with his people, uh, even in tough times, even in the fire of life, even when things are really hard, the pressure of life, God is with us. And we see that here in this, this, this beautiful story in the book of Daniel. And so what I would like to do for the sake of just introduction is look at chapter 1 real quick and then move to the reading that, that, that Jacob read this morning. Um, but in chapter 1 of Daniel, here's what we find. In the first deportation, okay, it, it tells us this of what happens in chapter 1, verse 1. It says... In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay, so that's 605 B.C. Babylon comes, Nebuchadnezzar comes, and they're going to 
begin to destroy Jerusalem. And then in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And so the land of Judah, the people of God, being brought into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure of his God. Now, Shinar, or Shinar, that, that, that means Babylon. And what that city's name stands for is simply this. It means hostile to God. That's what that name means of that city. And so that's who Nebuchadnezzar was. That's who the Babylonians were. They did not worship. They did not believe in the God of Israel. They did not believe in the one true God. And so they bring, they start to begin to bring the Israelites okay, back to Babylon where they hold them in captivity. And then it says in verse three, the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family, the nobles, the youths in whom was, there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king, in verse 5, appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now, who were those guys? Among them were uh, from the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to these guys. To Daniel, they gave him the name of Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And so here are these guys. They come over in this first deportation. They're brought to Babylon. They're put into this training to be educated in the way of the Chaldeans. Now what does that mean? They're to learn the culture. They're to learn the religion which would be occultic, even magic, uh, idolatry, all these things uh, about the way of the Babylonians, and specifically in southern Babylon. Also, the way of the Chaldeans was also the way of astrology, uh, also um, more about their religion, and they could be priests as well in, in that cult. And so that also was the study they got. And so the way of Chaldeans, they would be taught that and trained that. They were to eat a certain diet as well, and their names were changed. Okay? Now what's significant about that is their first set of names were the names that, that, that uh, spoke of, of God. It, it had meaning. In fact, if you think about uh, the names uh, in particular, Daniel met my judge's God. Hananiah met Yahweh has shown great grace. Mishael met who is what God is, meaning God is who he is. And then Azariah, Yahweh has helped. And so these were names that they had who meant something. That they're names that, that represented God, but they changed. Nebuchadnezzar had them change uh, to Babylonian names. And so that's where we get Belshazzar for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so these guys now go through training. They're to eat what the Babylonians eat, the specific diet. But Daniel says, wait a second, wait a second. The, the, this food, this, this diet that you have for us goes against our convictions. And so these dietary laws you have, we believe deeply that they would defile us and make us unclean. And so Daniel takes a stand. And in verse 8, he says this. 
He says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself by eating this food. And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for 10 days were allowed to be tested. And they ate vegetables and they drank water. And God gave them favor. God gave them favor. In fact, look at verse 18. Then at the end of those days, which the king had specified for, for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented before Nebuchadnezzar these guys. In verse 19, the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, conjurers who were in all of his realm. Now, here's what we see. These three guys stand up for their conviction. They stuck with their convictions, even in this foreign land, even under the pressure of a foreign evil king. They walk with God, and they stick to their convictions. Here's what I want you to see at the very beginning with these, three young, these four young men, with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that walking with God is about the everyday little choices. The everyday little choices. They were expected to eat this food, but they said no. That will defile us. We, we believe that God has called us to, to not eat the food of a foreign land and, and, and food of an evil king. And so we're gonna eat this way and God was with them. This was a small stand that they took but it's important that we are willing to take stands that we believe are right without compromise. This small stand will do something. It will set the stage for a bigger stand that they are going to have to make and take. And so that sets us up for where we're going this morning. Here's what God does next. God puts these young men in different positions. He brings Daniel into a position into his royal court because Daniel's gonna be used in chapter two to help reveal and tell Nebuchadnezzar about his dreams. When other astrologers could not, the Chaldeans, Daniel could. And then he would take and he put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as administrators in the province of Babylon. And so they would serve in that role faithfully as men who stuck to their convictions. But then look what happens in chapter three. I want us to see this. Nebuchadnezzar comes up with this idea that he is going to build and erect this statue. Look at verse one in chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold the height of which was 60 cubits. It's, it's with 60 cubits. He set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the perfects, uh, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to ded the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and then 
The herald loudly proclaimed this. To you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every language, that the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trajan, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down. And you are to worship the golden image. But whoever does not worship or fall down shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And then the music played, and the people were to bow down. The people of Israel that had been transported to Babylon lived under the law of God, and God had given them commands. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 20, we read about them, right? We call them the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 20, verse 3 through 5, here's what the people of Israel are to live according to. It says this, that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, the people of Israel called to worship God alone. You and I, in this room this morning, you and I were created to worship God alone alone, the one true God. And here they're called to worship another God, this image. They're to bow down and worship in honor of Nebuchadnezzar. And so the music plays. So can you imagine this scene? All these people bowing down to worship their king, this image that he has set up. And look what happens in verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans, key word there, and so these are astrologers. Um, these guys right here, they're not happy, right? Because these guys in chapter 2 were guys that they couldn't quite do, right, what Daniel did. They could tell the king, hey, here's what your, your, dream, your dream meant, but they couldn't. And so here are these guys in chapter 2, or excuse me, in chapter 3, verse 8, and they come forward and they brought charges against the Jews. And it says in verse 9, they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the music play should fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the burning furnace, the blaze of fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province. Their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods, or worship the golden image which you have set up. And so these astrologers, they go, and they tattle of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they would not bow down. They would not worship this golden image. They would not worship Nebuchadnezzar. And look what happens in verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage of anger, gives orders to bring these guys to him. These men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you are ready at the moment when you hear the music play, and so he's going to give them a second choice, fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast in the midst of the furnace and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. And so immediately, Nebuchadnezzar is mad. He's stewing. 
and he brings them forward. And so how will they respond? How they re- will they respond to this other chance? Will they now bow down? Well, look what happens in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys refused. Here's what we see right here. We see faith. We see faith. They knew whom they believed in. And they believed that their God was the one true God who reigned. And they believed that if God wanted to, he was able to deliver them from the furnace and from the captivity of King Nebuchadnezzar. They believed that. Their trust in God held strong in knowing that if it were God's will for them to face death, though, in the furnace, that they were willing even to face that because they're not going to worship any other gods. They were gonna worship the one true God, whether it was in God rescuing them and delivering them or whether it was in their death. They were going to worship the one true God. And so what do we see right here? For these guys, there was not a cost too high. There was no cost that was too high for them to pay when it came to living for their God. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are willing to to not only trust God and and face some consequences, but but the, the greatest of consequences, losing their life in the furnace. You see, there is a truth worth living for and also dying for. And it's the gospel. You see, what's on the line here is is who are we going to worship? And these guys were not willing to bow their heart or their knees to any other God. They were only going to worship the one true God. And they would pay whatever price that meant. So for us, what cost is too high? For some of us to, to worship God and to live for him, it, it may mean we've got to give up this. It may mean our calendar has to change. Our lifestyle has to change. I mean, you, you fill in the blank. What price do I need to pay? Because walking with Jesus is costly. It will cost us. That's what discipleship is about. Walking with Christ is, is not a cruise ship, man. It's not getting on the cruise ship and putting your feet up and, 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 and it's this easy road, right? It is full of resistance. It is full of tough decisions. It will cost your time, cost your money. It might cost your reputation. It will cost. It will cost. It might cost when it comes to relationships. It will cost when you make a stand God, just like these guys did. And they were even willing to give up their own life. And so the king, listen to what happens next in verse 19. The king Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath 
right? I'd love to be around this guy, wouldn't you? I mean, he just seems like a fun dude to be around. So many levels. His facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his armies to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of the blazing fire. Then these four men, or excuse me, then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, their clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire, check this out, these valiant men, they are slewed by the furnace. They are killed, it says, as they carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Wow. So he orders it to be heated up. His valiant men who carry them there are killed. You think at this moment, how come these valiant guys died, but these guys are still tied up and it didn't affect them? I'm thinking something's up here, right? So look what happens in verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. He stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? So something's up here. These guys are in there. They're, they're still in their clothes. They, they were tied up. And now something has changed. And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. And he said this, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then of the furnace of blazing fire, he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. There's a fourth person. And these guys are walking around, no longer tied up. The fire is not affecting them. In fact, if you look at verse 27, satraps, the prefects, the governors, the kings, high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect whatsoever on these guys. Not their clothes, um, not one part of their hair was singed, their trousers weren't damaged, nothing. They, there was not even um, a smell of fire on them. You imagine this? But who is this fourth person? Wow. We don't know specifically, right? Some believe that this was an angel. Some believe it was the angel of the Lord, literally the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus. And so that's where I kind of land is that, man, this, this is Jesus, right? The pre-incarnate Christ. Before Jesus comes from heaven down to earth, this is him here in the midst of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. And so here are these guys in the midst of this affliction, and he protects them from harm. What's amazing about this is he didn't deliver them from being thrown into the fire, but he delivers them in it, in it. The Bible tells us this in Isaiah 43. I love this. He says, but now... Thus the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not be afraid, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers. They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And so God reveals himself to Israel in this moment. Not only am I your creator, who has formed you as a people, you are mine, but I'm going to be with you, even in the fire. I'm going to be with you. Now, why is this so, so huge to the people of Israel? They have believed that God, his presence dwells only in the temple. And so here are these people where their city has been destroyed. Their city, uh, it, their temple is going to eventually be wiped out where God dwells. And so here they are in this foreign land. And here's what God tells them. No matter where you're at, even if you're in captivity in a foreign land under the reign of an evil king, I'm going to be with you. My presence is with you. My presence isn't just in a temple. It's not just in a building on Sunday morning. My presence is with you wherever you go, people of Israel. My presence is with you even in the furnace, even in the fire. My presence is with you. And so here we see just the grace of God. Here we see the presence of God. And he rescues these guys. He delivers them from the furnace. And nothing is affected. Amazing. It was huge for Israel. It's also huge for us. Because God will be with us in the fire. I want you to think of this story like this. I want you to think about this world that we live in. The some six billion plus people that live in this world. And a good deal of them are in the furnace this morning. They're in the fire. And here's what I mean. The Bible talks about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is, is, is the anger. It's, it's the judgment of God. It's the right judgment of God upon people because they worship other gods because they do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so they're under the wrath of God. It's It's reality. The Bible says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. And so there are people alive and breathing, but they're really dead in their hearts and they're under the wrath of God. But here's the good news this morning, is that God sent his son. He sent his son to come down into lives of people who are in the furnace. Emmanuel, God with us. He came from heaven to earth. The Bible tells us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, people under the wrath of God, people who are dying in their sin. God so loved the world that he did something. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and dwell among us, to take on flesh, and not only to dwell among us, but to die on a cross and to lay down his life for us. Why? So that we could be rescued from the wrath of God. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the judgment of God. But guess what? God sent Jesus. And by his grace, 
He doesn't come and say, hey, you gotta do all these good things, you gotta climb this ladder to get to me, you gotta get everything right in your life before you can come to me. No, he says, listen, I'm coming down to your mess, to your junk, to, to your sin, and to your disobedience, people of Israel, uh, people of this world today, and I'm coming down, and I'm sending my son, and he is going to die for you. And here's how the Bible put it in Romans chapter 5. Let's know what Paul says in verse 8. He says, God demonstrates, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, God died for us. Since we have now been justified or made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God that uh, through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of Jesus Christ, his son, how much more having been reconciled, made right with God, shall we be saved through his life. That's what Jesus came for. He came to rescue us. He came on that mission. That's why he came. And those who believe, Romans uh, 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's what God came for. That's why he sent Emmanuel, God with us. That's why he sent Jesus to dwell among us, to show us how to live for, for God and ultimately to lay down his life, become a sacrifice for us so that our sins could be forgiven and that we would no longer be under the wrath of God, but by his grace, we would be made right with God. Not by anything that we've done, not by religion, but through a relationship with Jesus Christ, believing in him. And look what happens next as, as we close out. In verse 28, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. And so these guys, their trust in God is seen. Their witness is noticed. And look what happens next. They put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. What a witness. Look what happens in verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be, this is, this is great, look at this, shall be torn limb from limb. What? And their house is reduced to rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. There's so much here, but here's what I want you to see. Here are these guys living in this foreign land. What do they do? They live by their convictions. They trust God. When there's a time to stand, because they have a choice, either worship this God or die. They're willing to stick to their guns and to worship the one true God, to have faith, even if it meant death. And what does God do? God takes their witness, and he causes their witness, of trusting him, of worshiping him, to shine bright across this land. 
even in the midst of an evil king and an evil people in idolatrous foreign land, he takes these aliens and strangers. Remember, these guys are foreign to this land, and he takes them, and, and they live out their faith. And now what God does is he brings about this change, right? He brings about this change because of their witness. Does that sound familiar? The Bible tells us this. And by the way, I don't know about you guys, but it's obvious we don't live in the promised land. You with me on that? Right? America is not the promised land. All right? Hopefully you don't think that. But we live in Babylon. Okay? We live in Babylon. And so listen to this. In, In 1 Peter 2, listen to what this says. In verse 9 through 12, you are a chosen people. This is God's word to the church to his disciples. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a God's special possession. That's who you are if you know Jesus. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful life. That is who you are and that's what we're to do. We're to declare who God is in this dark world. And listen to what it says. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, right? Why? Because we are not, this is not our home. Our home is with God in heaven. He says this that you are to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans or Gentiles that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God wants to take our witness as we stand and we worship God in the midst of a land of idolatry. And he wants to take our witness, and he wants us to impact lives. And it may not be this big decree that goes out and impacts a nation like this. But guess what? It may impact one life, one life. And that's what Jesus wants for us. He said this in the Great Commission he gave to us. You remember what he said? He said this in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, therefore, disciples, people who follow me, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says, and teach them all that I've taught you. And here's what he told us in verse 20. He says, and I will be with you to the end of this age. You see, these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were worshipers of the one true God. And they witnessed to that. And it ended up putting them in a furnace. And God rescued them. But guess what? You and I, we're worshipers of the one true God. And you and I are called to be witnesses. And we're to remember as we are, as we go out and make disciples, as we tell people about Christ, we are to remember that God is with us. And it may mean that, hey, listen, something happens to us. It it may mean that we have to give up something. It may cost us something. It costs them. 
And they knew it, but they were like, hey, listen, it, it may cost us this, and may, God may deliver us, and he may rescue us from the furnace. But if he does not, if he does not, I will still take a stand and worship God. So the question is, what about you and I? As believers, do we have this kind of faith? Where we're willing, whatever the cost is, to pay the price? And are we willing to go out and make disciples? Are we willing to do that? I, I pray that we are. But here's the thing I want you to remember. God is with us. He's promised that for us. His presence is with us to strengthen us as we stand for him. No matter what happens, he will be with us as we stand for the truth of God. So remember that. Let me pray.